Bakta Nonverba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. To live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. In this episode of Octanon Verba, we hear part two of my interview with April Parks, multiple-time world Brazilian jiu-jitsu champion, athlete, and advocate. In part one, April shares how she establishes boundaries and control over any situation by leaning on discipline and scientific strategy. We also discuss how April respects and protects her body and mindset while cutting weight and competing professionally, how to prioritize the best performing version of yourself over any goal, and why hustling is not a badge of honor. You can hear part one on episode 80 of Octanon Verba. And now please enjoy part two of my interview with the tremendous April Parks. I had an administrator, a former administrator, who unfortunately right now she's experiencing stage four breast cancer and prognosis is not looking good, but everyone's very hopeful and she's praying and she's in a great spot. But she used to always say, so what, now what? And I used to be so frustrated. I used to say, so what, now what is so dismissive? Stop saying it. It used to drive me mad. And not two weeks ago, she came in and she gave a speech to us because she's taking early retirement because of her current condition. And she said, you guys remember when I used to say, so what, now what? And I was like shaking my head. And she goes, I literally had to tell myself, so what, now what? So what? I have stage four cancer. I have two beautiful children and a husband. So what now? What am I going to do about it now? Am I going to sit here? Am I going to cry every day? Am I going to literally just be, what am I going to do? Is this the last that my kids are going to remember of me if I go? And if I stay, so what, now what? I better start thinking positive and I better, better doing everything that I can within my power to make myself healthy and be around for my children in the future. So I do think that statement, so what now, I do think it's very powerful. And I do think a lot more people could live by that mantra and it's not dismissive. It's really not. I mean, I think everyone has struggle. I think everyone has some kind of trauma, especially since it's so just perspective related that it is. So what now, what if we choose to own it, if we choose the, so what now, what now it's an empowering statement. Now it's something where it's like, okay, that happened, but this is what I'm going to do with it. This is the lens through which I see this adversity. But if we choose to see it as something that's disempowering, I call it the adversity perception cycle. If we have adversity in our life and now the perception is this is going to suck. I'm not going to be good at this. What are we doing? We're making it unnecessarily more difficult for ourselves. It's correct. And you're going to manifest that, right? Like that's going to happen, period. It's going to happen. But if you approach those things from a position of strength and from a position of control, like you said, you own it. Okay, this all happened. It sucks, <laughs> right? Like that's a fact, but where are we going to go from here? And how can that actually help us? That's it. And we'll use a jujitsu idea. You're a black belt, multiple world champion. Even if I get you in a position where I'm like in a better position, like if I'm inside control, I guarantee she's not going to say, oh, I'm in an inferior position. It's actually when you're rolling with a good black belt, you can actually feel it's like, even though I feel like I'm in a really great position, it's only a matter of time where she's going to roll me over or there's going to be a hole in my game and she's going to exploit it. 
So when you have that resilience, because you've been there so many times, this is not your first rodeo. You've forgotten about this position because you've done it so many times compared to the person who's in a superior position. And that's how life is, where if you see adversity as something that is going to keep you in this lower position, you will always be there. But if you say, I've gotten out of much worse positions than this before in my life, financially, emotionally, physically, then all of a sudden it becomes this, oh, you can't do this. You're like, bullshit, watch what happens now. Yeah, it becomes completely empowering in jujitsu terms, worst case scenario positioning, right? And drilling. It's sometimes you basically put yourself in that position on purpose. Maybe the person's a white belt, maybe you're a black belt. And you're like, okay, take my back, full hooks, get a deep choke. Let me see if I can get out. And so you're challenging yourself to continue to strive and open up in this position. But yeah, I mean, life is like that and life should technically be like that. Preparing for worst case scenarios, not like you're this doomsday person, right? And it's not like you're anxiety ridden, but you understand that life is going to be ups and it's going to be down. And I'm going to go back to that concept of discipline, right? If you have discipline in your daily activities, emotion, if you have discipline in your spirituality, whatever it is that you feel that you can control and you have discipline over, it's going to serve you when those ups and downs happen in life. There's no structure or discipline and a down happens and everything implodes. That's it. And if we have discipline in one area, if we are able to have the courage, we can let that translate to all these other spheres. But it works the other direction as well. If I allow myself to compromise, if I give up when I could have been giving more, if I'm losing resilience because it's like, ah, this is rough morning or I'm sore or whatever bullshit excuse you have in your mind, have that conversation now before you get there and say, so what, now what? Because the thing is, if people don't understand, think of it like this. Imagine the consequences if you do nothing. Imagine what happens if you just keep staying here and making this decision for right now. Years pass opportunities go away, people come and go. And now all of a sudden, these things that you were wanting to do when you're 25, you're 35, you're 40, you're 50. So here's the thing. If there's something that you want to do, act on it now because your opportunity to do that is going away. And I don't mean that in a doomsday way, like, oh, you're going to die or whatever, but you get married, kids come along, we lose a job, pandemics happen, all this kind of stuff, right? So if that's the case, have urgency around those things that are important. Again, create those boundaries about the things that you really give a shit about, and then just go full force into those things. Because frankly, we don't know how much time we have. You really don't. And I I watched this like really terrible, like B film. It was a horror movie. I'm a horror movie fanatic and it was terrible, but there was this one great quote that I share with everyone. Worth it. <laughs> <laughs> These two years of my life will never get back, but I got this quote. Amazing. <laughs> and it was like this like mafia guy before he was going to kill somebody. And he's like, you can do three things in life when faced with a situation. You can do the right thing, the wrong thing, eh, right? Or nothing. He goes, the one I respect the least is the guy that does nothing. And then he killed him. Okay. So let's break that down. You can go to a tournament. You can do the right thing. You could do the wrong thing or you could do nothing. If you were to walk away and evaluate your performance, if you did the right thing, you might be happy and say, awesome, cool. I made a great choice. If you did the wrong thing, you have an opportunity of growth and learning where you can say, oh my gosh, why did I do that? I could have done A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Your coach helps you ETC. But if you did nothing, you just said nothing. It's just like, what did I do? Why was I even there? And this is, I really think, relatable to everything in life. If somebody texts you something you don't like, right? 
you can answer with the right thing. You can answer with the wrong thing and offend them, but just don't answer at all. Like it's people that just don't do anything at all. Like I really, I do have difficulty understanding because I think in the end, that's a life not lived. And to me, that's just the most sad thing in the universe is, is someone not living their beautiful, valuable life in which if they were authentically them, no matter what that is, and no matter how long it is or takes it them to find out who they are, it would be such an attribute to society because we already have people that just try to act like everybody else. We already got that guy and that lady. We don't want any more of them. We want you. We need you. And living that life of quiet desperation is what most people do. That's their default mechanism, which is what happens if they do nothing, if they just choose to inadequate. I've had people that after I speak or whatever, they'll come up and they'll say, hey, I haven't gone through as much adversity as you have, dot, 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 but I've gone through this. Or I've even had some people that say, I went through high school. It was unremarkable. I went through college. I have a degree. I have kind of like this vanilla existence. And they're like, I haven't really gone through adversity. And what I point out to them is it's like, you're living in it right now. Your adversity is mediocrity. You're like the fish that doesn't even know that you're in the water. And because of that, you're waiting for something to happen. You're hoping something's going to happen. And the reality is they're not doing anything. They're not making things happen. And that's what we have to do. So again, that litmus test from the very beginning of the show, when she was saying, people say, oh, you can't do that. To me, it's the same way. If they're not saying that's crazy or asking me why I'm trying to do something, then I'm usually not doing something that's outside the box. And then every time, from my experience, every time I've leveled up, like you're a multiple world champion, every time you level up from that, you look down on where you used to be and say, that's not bad, but why did I stay there for so long? Why did I wait this long to take action on this area? Whether it be a weakness, whether it be late submission defense, whatever it is, but you're in this place now where it's like, okay, I want to take this time frame now from here on out and shorten it and get there faster. And now what happens? That's the tide that rises all boats. Now every student that you have, every person that's on your team, every competition you have, every conversation that you have with somebody from there on out can be even more honest, more real, more authentic, which people talk about authenticity today, but it's just a fucking buzzword at this point. I really think it is. I think it is unfortunate that we live in a cancel culture. You say something and people are like, oh, and they want to cancel you. Okay. I think at some point I'll be canceled and I'm okay with that. <laughs> like that's kind of authentic. Cancel me. I don't care. I plan on someday being canceled and I'm okay with it. And it won't be me purposely offending anybody. It will be me just speaking something, saying that you're going to have to like earn something in life. Like you're going to have to work for what you get. Something might be hard. You might cry. It might hurt but it's all going to be okay in the end. Well, and we were talking before how in today's culture, because there isn't any sort of discipline, because there's no sort of resilience, people cannot wait to be offended by anything. Like they're looking for it. Like they're looking on their feed. They're looking on TV. They're looking at a soundbite from somebody else's like to just feign this audacity, right? I think it's how they find their identity. It is. You know what I'm saying? It's like they're part of now a group of people that's easily offended. That's an identity. Whatever that group is, I want to be the opposite group. You to be able to say any and everything to me. You could talk about my dead relatives, my family, how I look, my dog. No, don't talk about my dog. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> kids. And I want to not be offended at all, ever. Because you want to know what? I think that everybody deep down, everybody really has beauty to them and they have something to offer. And I think everybody has hurt and everybody has trauma and everybody has all these things, right? Like they really do. And, but we're all human. We all can meet on some kind of common ground and speak about pretty much anything, I think. We have to have that maturity. And here's the thing. You can take a person that you love or a person that you've known your whole life. And if we sat down, got out paper and wrote everything that we liked and didn't like, eventually you're going to find something in those categories where you're like, what? 
you like pineapple on pizza? Get out. I mean, there's going to be something and you can be easily offended by that. And that can be the end of the career, but it just comes down to, you're not going to agree with everybody. And hypothetically, even if you did, how boring would that existence be where you're saying something and everybody's like, oh, I absolutely agree. Right. I mean, I think it's great that people disagree. Like, I really do. I think it's awesome. Disagree and then still respect each other enough to say, you know what? I don't agree with that. I don't agree with what you think about X, Y, and Z, but we're going to still go out and have dinner and we're still going to have a good time. And I'm still going to bust your balls about this because we have enough respect to be able to do that. Like I have this friend, Svenja, and she's a high-level competitor from Europe. She's in Switzerland and Germany right now, miss her to pieces. But I always tell people, I love her honesty, just her blatant honesty. And I'm like, I don't know if it's like a European thing or if it's just a Svenja thing, but like I'll have girlfriends where I'm just like, hey, like did that person like treat me weird? Like, did that just happen? Like, am I making this up or whatever? And they'll be like, yeah, I think they were, blah, blah, blah. And I'll be like, Svenja, I'll be like, did this person treat me weird? And she'd be like, I didn't see that at all. I don't think so. Maybe they were tired. And she's just so matter of fact. And I just love it. It's so refreshing to have friends or people that are willing to just not say yes to you and to agree with you. And it's like, that's why she's one of my favorite people in the world. She will go against me in a minute. I'll be like, I love the blue. I'm going with the blue. And she'll be like, no, the red's better. It just is. And I'll be like, you think so? She'll be like, it is. It's just better. I'm like, you know what? I do like the red. These people make you open-minded and you got to have that growth mindset. And I think that's another thing just really missing in society. I am always willing to say something And then somebody else gives a perspective an hour later. And it's not like I'm this flip-flop or wishy-washy person. I'll be like, whoa, I didn't really think about it like that. That's pretty interesting. I might have to change my mind. And just the fact that you're open to it is the key. And that's the sign of, well, Bruce Lee's analogy, right? I absorb what is useful. I discard what is useless. And I add what is specifically my own. So if you've always been like a bottom player in jujitsu, and all of a sudden you realize, hey, this neon belly thing, I'm actually pretty good at it. All of a sudden, it's this top position where now it becomes your whole game isn't based on just being in this one place. It's like you have all these abilities and that could come because you were willing, like you said, to be open to say, hmm, I'm going to give that a shot. All of a sudden, it becomes your favorite technique, favorite transition, favorite series, whatever it is. My fiance and I, we have a really funny theory about my jujitsu. He's really served as my coach for about the past six years. Whenever we're training in training camps, he'll be teaching me a technique that he's been doing for four or five years and he like loves it. And I vehemently resist it. I'm like, I hate this technique. It will never work. It only works for your body type. (laughs) I get so mad. And then it's, I'm always about two years behind. So then like the next two years, whatever he was trying to teach me two years ago, I'm like, this is amazing. And it's like becomes my whole game. And he just face palms. He's just like, oh my God. I've been telling you that this was amazing and you just did not get on board. And so, yeah, that's basically what it's like. I'm like looking for these adaptations. I'm like, oh, wait, I didn't think I would like that, but now I love it. And maybe sometimes it's where you're at. Where are you at in life? And right then you might not be able to understand what someone's saying or see that perspective. Maybe you need to experience two or three more things or experiences, right? Before you say, wait a second. That's what that guy was talking about. Yeah, it's just like, I know that you're a reader, so it's the same thing. You can read a book that you love when you were 25 and you read it now and you're like, this is a bunch of pap. There's nothing in here. It's like, why did I even love that? And then you read a book that you read when you were 25. Again, you're like, this is way over my head. This guy's, I don't understand what they're talking about. And then when you're 35 or 40, you're like, wow, this guy Hemingway, I think he might've been onto something. You're like, he wrote a couple of things that weren't so bad. 
So it's all down to that self-awareness and being able to be honest with ourselves. And that's where I think in society, people are being kind of encouraged to get into line with this specific area or this category or this box or whatever it is. And I think that again, like you're saying, even before we were recording, you were saying how there's a part of you that's very fun and there's a part of you that's very like goofy or whatever it is. And all human beings have that in there if we're willing to embrace it and at least lean into it and acknowledge that it exists. Because if all we have is the same monotone, blah, 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 the whole time, eventually people become either numb to it or we become numb to it. We're not really getting anything out of it in the process. So again, we can be disciplined and still have that humor. We can be empathetic and still call people on their bullshit and say, I'm not going to let you do this. We can give as much as we can to people and still say, you know what, I have to say no because I have to keep myself intact and protect myself. Yeah, that's right. And we had also spoken before the recording started, Katie and I wanting to start our own podcast. And we are definitely going to ask you to be on our podcast. But one of the, the topics that came up was, you know, we did a seminar series across the southern part of the United States this year and also Vegas and Colorado and Jersey. And we really wanted to, and Emily Kwok and and Dominica had done a podcast on this as well, is just to continue to normalize females in front of the room, teaching not just women's or kids classes, which is, we've all been asked, we're purple blue belts. They're like, would you like to teach? I'm like, I'd love to teach. And they're like, you can teach a women's or kids class, which happens to men too, right? Like nobody's going to let the purple belt just take over the men's class. But we did want to be able to teach the men's class, the co-ed class. And so we really traveled to a lot of schools to, to ensure that that becomes the norm. Sooner or later, you're going to walk in and you're going to see just a female instructor. And she's teaching all these big burly men and they're going to be like, that's your coach. And they're going to go, yeah, she's great. You know? So that was kind of the goal. And in doing that, anytime that we had a lot of black belt men in the room and they were all awesome, all the schools we went to were so awesome, but in many different settings, we do feel like we're just being like really judged and and like watched to make sure that how we're teaching is a way that they would like to teach or that they think is the standard of teaching. And the conversation that Katie and I had was really, you know, we want to be our own person. We can really teach however is an expression of us and how we learn best. For instance, me having a background in education, I know how to differentiate instruction. I know how to appeal to the multiple different ways that people learn. And I tend to teach with a lot of analogies and similes and those kinds of things, which maybe I am not speaking in super technical terms. Maybe I'm throwing jokes in there. But feedback after we leave the seminars is like the way that you guys taught was so like heartfelt. Like, and I picked up so many nuggets of information and analogies that I'm just like taking with me because it really struck this chord. And so many of the men saying, I just love the way that you guys taught. It was so different than the way that the men teach. And so we just really thought, wow, we do need to have this discussion because if we taught like every other instructor we've had, we would be just like them. We need to teach how we feel we want to teach, how we want to express our jujitsu. As long as we're using the correct, appropriate technical terms, those kinds of things, like that's great. But we want to be able to teach how we feel is best to teach. It's also the ability to be at the level that you're at. You can read the room. You can see what's landing, so to speak. You can see where you're like, okay, we're going to do Uma Plata and half the class is like, does that come with queso? I mean, what is that? So now you're saying, okay, we're going to bring this down. But again, they always say that facts tell stories sell. So the story becomes that anchor. So they may not even be able to do Uma Plata very well, but if you connect it and explain, listen, I go from this, I can get the arm bar, I can get a triangle, I can sweep from here. Now all of a sudden they say, 
huh, now almost like what you were saying earlier, where it took two years for you to get to the point where what your coach was teaching you to make sense, you can give them that knowledge. And that's something that they can pass on to somebody else, even if the technical perspective may not be there. That's right. And I taught AP US history for six years. And in teaching AP US history, you know, it's, it's like a mile wide and an inch deep. And so you have to teach so much to these kids and anything could be on the exam. And so I would really try to make the lessons meaningful, impactful, so that they walked away and there was no way that they were going to actually forget what was taught. So if we were learning about World War I, for instance, I would have the desk flipped upside down. I had no man's land in the middle. We would be throwing grenades over top and you'd have to answer it for a review question. And if you got it right, you'd have to go over the top into no man's land and you know die via some method of warfare that was invented in 1914. So it was all just very relative. If I was doing an archaeological dig, I had buckets of dirt in there that were dumped. It was very real, right? Like you would experience these kinds of things and there was no way that these kids were going to forget it. If we did a civil war dinner, we actually had the food and we sat around and we were like, would you want to eat this for months? No. So when these kids would write their DBQs, right, or their essays, they were filled with so much beautiful information about experiences that we shared that they were never going to lose these concepts. And so we really, again, Katie and I talk about being able to teach in this manner, which I do think is a little bit different than some of the, the schools that we've been to. And not to say that the schools are bad. I'm not saying that. She's part of one of the greatest schools on the planet. And I'm in Carlos Machado affiliation, which is amazing. But again, we want to be able to teach to what speaks to our hearts. And that will be our impact. And that's what shows the difference between a person who is trying to They say that a master is able to take something complex and make it simple. And a person that wants to muddy the waters to make it seem deep, as Nietzsche would say, they want to try to take the simple thing and make it much more complex to substitute for their lack of true authenticity of true substance. And so, like you said, with history, it's easy to get overwhelmed with all of this jargon and all these dates. But like you said, if you can explain during World War I what it was like, what trench foot was, why they weren't able to eat like this, what was going on, it adds a whole new layer, a whole new texture to that. And now you can't forget it. And now this is why, especially in today's society, we're very short-minded. We learn from history that we do not learn from history. We can read it, but we're not putting it into play. And so this is why the importance of, in my opinion, martial arts, philosophy, these things that just naturally dovetail into something that is real world and practical and pragmatic You can give that to somebody right now, whether it be in this conversation, whether it be in a book, a blog post, whatever it is, and they can hold on to that for the rest of the afternoon, the rest of the evening that can become their mantra that can push them when they're wanting to give up in a workout or whatever it is. But that's the key to it. You have to be able to have something that's worth saying in the first place and say it well, as opposed to coming up with a bunch of stuff to make it sound like you're smart. I agree. And I think you actually touched on a great point and you mentioned philosophy, right? And I think philosophy is so important, and I'm glad that it's mandatory at so many universities and colleges because it does make you think. And so much of modern education does not allow for you to be able to think or think for yourself, for sure. It does not do that and promote that. So even in a jujitsu sense, to sit and speak with one of your students and say, now, why? Why would you want to do that? Instead of them just being like, well, I don't know. Kind of like the parent that says, don't do that. And the kid says, why? And he says, because you don't. No. Why don't you ask them why they felt like this was an appropriate reaction? And maybe they have a great response. Maybe there's not one specific answer for what they're doing. 
And maybe what they're doing, they had good intentions and they can connect or make a connection with another choice from their thought process. You don't have to do a total rewiring or shutting down. And we were talking before, you and I see adversity as a gift. I've never met a strong person that has not gone through any sort of hardship in their life. As a matter of fact, there's usually a direct proportion to how much they bear, how much they acknowledge, how much they overcome. And you've talked to us a little bit about your life and some of the things that you've gone through. Can you tell us about a specific moment in time where you hit some sort of adversity where at that time you were like, man, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And you were just kind of stuck there. And then the process that got you through it and then the opportunity and the gift that you found on it on the other side. I think 2017, my daughter Anastasia was diagnosed with Cushing's disease, which at the time it was supposed to be just a tumor. And here in Syracuse, they weren't able to locate where the tumor was. And so they were thinking that the tumor, and it typically is on the pituitary gland in the brain. And so we were sent to the NIH, which at the time, nobody knew or had heard of the NIH. Ironically, we spent a lot of time there because they were the foremost experts in the world in identifying Cushing's disease and finding and locating where the tumors were. We spent a great deal of time down there trying to figure out where her tumor was, It was a really frustrating, long process. The effects of the disease on her were very traumatic, very, very traumatic. For a 17-year-old young girl, she was a high-level soccer player. She was uh, had a very bright future. And about 15, 16 years old, her body started to kind of break down. And so with Cushing's, they are carcinoids, which are really slow-growing tumors. And because of that, they wreak these kind of slow, gradual effects on the body that often mimic other things, right? So she had this disproportionate weight gain in her face and developed a buffalo hump on her back of her neck. So then hair started to grow just in random places. Her hair on her head started to fall out until she was almost bald. And then she had, at the, at the height of this, when we finally figured out something's wrong and she was misdiagnosed a couple of times and this just can't be what they've told us it is, striations, which are stretch marks for a 17-year-old girl randomly all over her body starting to bleed. Now, this was caused from the carcinoids and it thinned her skin, okay? And so this is why her skin was literally ripping. So during the process of trying to get the tumor location identified, she's just really at a low point in her life. And she spent about a good, I want to say about a good six or seven months with a hood on, refusing to leave the house, refusing to go out into public. Girls were very cruel, very mean to her. Yeah. And you know, and I think like I can go through a lot, but when you see like your child go through something, it's a total another experience. You just want to take it from them. You want to experience all the pain for them, protect them. And there's nothing that it's a maternal instinct. There's just nothing that you can do. And it's, it's helpless. And at the same time, you really feel like you can't vent, you can't act like this is tough for you because like, it's all about them. Right. So you just kind of bear the brunt of it and you just keep moving. So we were at the NIH, it was just before Christmas and they found the tumor. And when they found the tumor, it was in her lung. And so she was still in for the procedure that they had done this really bizarre, they snaked a camera up her veins into her brain to sample to see if there was any cortisol outside of their ATCH, I believe, or outside of her pituitary gland. And they didn't find any. And that's when they were able to find the tumor in the lung. And she was still in the procedure room and they came and found me. And after all of these physical ailments that she had endured and after all this pain and and just emotion and 
basically, I, I really thought she was going to give up on life. I, I really did. She, she said many times that she didn't want to live. They came in and they told me it's not a tumor. It's spread. And I'm like, okay, what does that mean? Like if it's spread, does that mean that that's cancer? And they said, yes. And I just, I lost it. I was like, no, I was like, nope. Cause I don't know in my mind, I had conceptualized like a tumor, like it's a tumor. You take it out. It's gone. She goes back to normal. We move on. And so the fact that it had metastasis and that I had to like, say my daughter has cancer. It was too much. We got to give people credit. She's a tough cookie. She's very much like me. She came out of the surgery and she came in and I said, I'm not telling her. I'm not telling her. You guys have to tell her. They said to her, well, Anna, your tumor is not just a tumor. It's spread and you have cancer. And I thought she was going to be so upset. And she goes, okay, all right, that's fine. All I want to know is you found the tumor. If you take it out, do I go back to normal? We can deal with the cancer later. I was just blown away. I said, wow, that's amazing. It was a a six month process maybe where we just really had to deal with the surgery and the recovery. Her lung capacity was affected and just follow up treatments. She went down to Sloan Kettering to ensure that this wasn't going to continue to be an issue. And she's still technically in remission and she has to get consistent regular testing to make sure that it hasn't come back, but it hasn't come back since. And the experience, you know, made her tougher. But I'll tell you as a mother in the midst of that entire process, I just was, I was a mess. There was nothing to be said about it. Not in front of her because I couldn't be, but behind closed doors, I was like, I don't even know what to do. Like if, if something were to happen to her and, and, and I can't stop it and I can't prevent it. And, you know, my heart just went out to all the parents that deal with things like that and sitting in the hospital with terminally ill kids for six months, will do that to you. You know, she would cry and she'd say, I'm going home, but these kids aren't. It was a real, real bad six months. Yeah. You just felt completely helpless, but because you've instilled that in her and she has great genetics from you. She's a warrior. She didn't give up, right? Oh yeah. She's amazing. She's like, mom, you're the toughest person I know. I'm like, no, Anna, you beat me. I would have quit if you told me I can't. I'd be like, I'm done. Ah, you know, I said, you're just amazing. But yeah, you know, I think when, when something happens to your kid, you, you kind of just sit and you really got to evaluate everything in life. It really stopped me in my tracks. I've never really been stopped in my tracks before, but I was like, I think I'm done with everything. I think I'm done with jujitsu. I think I'm done with everything. I, I don't want to do anything. It was actually her that said, mom, you have to do jujitsu. You have to do this stuff. You know, I was kind of like in the peak. I think I was going to have the best year of my life that year competitively. And it just went skirt. And she said, mom, no, 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 we got to get back to this. So she actually talked me into going back to my first competition following that. And she came with me. And that's kind of how we got through that together. I understand those moments when I was paralyzed from the neck down at 40. It forced me, like you said, you realize all the stuff that we thought was so important. It doesn't mean anything. It just falls away. And there's only a couple of things that are important. And so for you, that relationship with her, that resilience that you instilled in her, imagine where she would have been had she not had the example that you provided for her 17 years before that. Yeah, I don't know. I know I've always been pretty tough on her and I I oftentimes had wondered why, but like we said, sometimes we don't know why we look back and now I know why, because it made her as tough as she is today. So I'm thankful that I was tough on her because I don't think a lot of young girls would have been able to get through the experience that she did. It's another testament to why it's so necessary to have some sort of mental toughness, some sort of resilience, some sort of thick skin. because if you haven't met adversity yet, like any real adversity, I know people have first world problems because their latte is not hot enough, but I'm talking about like real stuff that's going to punch you in the face repeatedly that's going to knock you down you have to prepare for that because it's on its way right now whether you realize it or not and it's going to show up whether you like it or not it doesn't give a shit about your opinion it's coming for you 
So you can choose right now to do things that will make you more powerful, to make you more resilient, to make you anti-fragile, or you can just put your fingers in your ears and say, la, 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 and get on TikTok and plug into the metaphors verse and act like nothing's going to happen. But that's very much an ostrich in the sand kind of mentality. And that's not going to serve you. And when the moment comes, you may have wished that you had done something about it now. That's right. And that's why your self-discipline, as we keep coming back to, maybe this should have been entitled discipline. You're going to have to figure out something that works for you, no matter what that is. And, you know, like you've mentioned, if you're that person that's been avoiding life and you've been hiding in your home and not taking risk and not doing things, the only thing that's inevitable is that those ups and downs are going to come. And when those downs come, if you've taken no preparation to prepare for them, they may be just completely devastating to you, your family, your psyche. It's literally unnecessary because simplistic steps will alleviate all of that. And it has to be simple to echo, right? If I'm getting ready to compete and you say, Marcus, shoot the double, get the takedown, get side control, and then then go from there, that's actionable. Those are cues that I can do right now. But if you're telling me, okay, I need you to go in, but if he doesn't go for this, I need you to transition to this, and if this doesn't happen here, that's too much, especially when adrenaline dumps into my body. So that simplicity is what will serve you. It takes away all the guessing. And it's much easier to do those things when there's simplicity because the minute that the first shot is fired, as they say, or the minute that the first takedown is attempted, your plan kind of goes out the window if you don't really have a very simple plan that's instilled in you that you can repeat over and over again. There's no advanced technique. There are only techniques that you can do well under pressure in combination of adversity. That's right. And I just think that if there's anybody listening to this and, and they hear the word discipline and maybe they're not on some kind of schedule or they're not doing anything currently that they feel is discipline. The author of that book, this is like the first thing that you do in the morning, wake up and make your bed. It could be as simplistic as just wake up and make your bed, start there. Then make a little list that says, okay, this week I'm going to make my bed and I'm going to walk for five minutes. Awesome. Maybe you make it three days out of five. You know, maybe you make it seven days out of seven. I don't know. But you have to start somewhere and start simple. And then just basically just add little baby steps. It's really not too hard. It is. And I'm the same way you are. I've noticed that some people, the word discipline almost becomes like this polarizing. Yeah, for some people, it's very triggering if you want to use the verbiage. But here's the reality. I don't care if you call it discipline. I don't care if you call it resolve. I don't care if you call it a habit. For a lot of people, if I just say, make a habit of making your bed or make a habit of going for a walk, that's more palatable for whatever reason. But in the end, I don't care what you call it. Understand that if you don't choose to do something consistently with discipline as a habit, you're vicariously choosing to do something else that is not going to serve you. And in this life, here's the thing. You either choose what you want or you become the choice of somebody else's decisions. So you're either choosing to be disciplined now to be able to do the things that you want to do for your family, for yourself where you're choosing to just kind of be this victim. And that's kind of what we've been talking about this entire time. And that's right. And I think if you don't have a clear plan of what your future looks like, that's still okay. I made a lot of plans for 2021. And the best things that came out of 2021 were things that I had no idea were ever even going to happen. So I didn't plan on those things. I just put myself out there. Some of the best people in the world I've ever met have been just happenstance. I didn't really want to go somewhere, but I went anyways. And then I'm like, oh my God, now that person is like my favorite person in the whole world now. So just taking small risk, calculated risk, putting yourself out there. That's what life is. You've got to start living. And life's not going to wait for you. It's not going to slow down and give you these golden opportunities. Everybody talks about, well, this guy was in the right place at the right time, or April was in the right place at the right time, but they don't understand all that April had to do to get herself in the position to have the capacity to be in the right place at the right time. Don't put her on a pedestal. Oh, well, that's, that's April Park. She's already this champion, all these things. No, 
She still has to work discipline every day. She still has adversity that she faces that she has to overcome. She just talked about that. Understand that she's human, but she chooses to go back into that every day, to get stronger every day, and to not give up when the going gets tough. That's the reality. That's right. And I think like, you know, social media is, I mean, it's great. You can market yourself. You can put yourself out there. But I even have that conversation with my kids. I'm like, I'm in Cancun for, I fly in Friday. I'm starving. I get like 20 minutes on the beach. You get a photo of me on the beach and it looks like she's having the best time ever. I was there for 20 minutes. I couldn't eat the buffet that was free. I woke up, I got slapped in my face and then I got on a plane and went back home. Like they don't see everything that goes into it. And like you were training for weeks before that and crying and you couldn't sleep and you were sore and you know what I'm saying? Like, is it all worth it? Yeah, it's absolutely worth it. But like you get the one picture of the end result and yeah, it's easy for a lot of people to dismiss it and be like, wow, they just had a great year. Things are easy for them. Things are great for them. They must be blessed. Well, yeah, I'm blessed, but nothing is easy. It's all something that, again, you've made choices a lot of choices that add up to where you land. And for people that don't understand that they just see a competition, like you're talking about the weight cut for most people would be brutal, but they don't understand the months of that kind of fight camp leading up to it. Like the actual competition itself is almost a relief because you've been getting your ass handed to you so many times by other people, bigger opponents, you get shark tanks, you get all this stuff where all of a sudden now you should be able to beat this person, but you've been fighting for the last five rounds intentionally trying to be cardio dumped and, and not have anything, but that's where we learn where we're at. That's where we learn. We put pressure on that structure and we see what begins to break. And that's the first thing we have to go to and say, okay, right here, this is the chink in the armor and April in the heat of battle, we can't let this go away. And that's how we get better. But that's where that we have to be very honest and we have to get uncomfortable and we have to lean into it. That's right. April, I could talk to you forever. I know. I feel like the podcast should be two hours. <laughs> well, I think when I'm on yours, we can talk as long as you want. Where can people learn more about you? What all do you have going on? You have a lot of things going on jujitsu wise and you have a lot of other stuff. Can you tell us where we can find you on IG, the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu getaways, all the things? Yeah. So my IG account is so old. It's Brazilian JJ girl. No, I'm not Brazilian. I always get that question. It's hysterical. IG tag from like when IG opened. <laughs> so I'm lucky, but I'm April Parks on Facebook. My husband and I have a website. It's vnjj.com and that's VN Jiu Jitsu. That's our school here in Syracuse. And it's really great because it kind of shows a lot of flows that we do, a lot of techniques that we teach and just our general philosophies, ideologies. We share a lot of those things with our, our fans and with our students. And also Grappling Getaways is a company that I own. That could be its own podcast, but it's a really great group of girls and it's open to anyone. We travel the world to pretty cool locations, throw some mats down, train, bond, share all of our experiences, and then just try to support each other moving forward in whatever endeavors that we are pursuing. Can't wait. Thank you so much for being here. Everyone, Follow her, listen to what she has to say. This is a woman who truly knows of what she speaks. She's not just pontificating or regurgitating things she hears on the web from all these other people. She's living it. She's very much an actions, not words kind of girl. So April, I can't thank you enough, Professor. I'll talk to you soon. Marcus, thank you so much. Be well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Octa Non Verba Inner Circle.
get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.